First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Stop punishing yourself with bland, chalky protein shakes and fuel your fitness with the best protein in the game at GNC. We've got the hottest brands and flavors that legit taste like cookies, your favorite cereal, indulgent desserts, and more. It's on at GNC. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to The Heal Podcast. I'm Kelly Noonan-Gores, and every week I speak to the leading doctors, healers, spiritual teachers, and scientists to find out what is truly possible when it comes to healing. I also interview real people with extraordinary healing stories. My philosophy is what's possible for one is possible for all. On today's episode of The Heal Podcast, I had the amazing opportunity to sit down with Dr. Zach Bush. Zach Bush is a physician specializing in internal medicine, endocrinology, and hospice care. He is an internationally recognized educator and thought leader on the microbiome as it relates to health, disease, and food systems. His work has highlighted the need for a radical departure from chemical farming and pharmacy, and his ongoing efforts are providing a path for consumers, farmers, and mega industries to work together for a healthy future for people and planet. After I finished Heal, I kind of switched my attention to the environment and really felt this call to explore how the planet, Mother Nature, is a living organism just like us humans. And if I believe that humans can heal from anything, I knew planet Earth could self-regulate and heal as well. Zach's work is what really anchored that theory in science for me and made it all make perfect sense. In this episode, he lays out the clear parallel between the declining health of Mother Earth and the declining health of humanity and offers us a root cause solution that brings us back into a symbiotic relationship with nature. It actually writes us back into the definition of nature. If you Google definition of nature, the result on Google is nature, the phenomena of the physical world collectively, including plants, animals, the landscape, and other features and products of the earth, as opposed to humans or human creations. We have literally written ourselves out of nature and written ourselves in opposition to nature. And herein lies the problem. I hope you find this conversation as enlightening as I did. Enjoy. Dr. Zach, thank you so much for being here. You are just an incredible human. You lead with compassion. You're so highly intelligent. And uh, I'm just honored that you are coming on to the podcast. Oh, I'm delighted to be here with you. And the audience is such a part of this as well. So grateful to be with all of you. Yes. Thank you guys for listening. So I think the best place to start because you have... We have so much to talk about, is just giving us a little bit of your background because you're triple board certified, you've had a long winding journey in, in the medical world, and just kind of let us know where you started and how you got to the microbiome and mm. our food systems. Very cool. Yeah, I increasingly 
retreat from the the concept of the triple board for certified because I've come to realize that the consumer hears that and thinks that I'm really super smart or something. But really what that means is it's a long and meandering path to finding your way to where you're supposed to be. And it took me quite a few tries to kind of find myself into my purpose as, as a professional career, certainly, but it's really fulfilled my kind of spiritual, personal sense of self and finding my way into the soil here in the microbiome. But it began actually in a, in a pretty extraordinary left-hand turn in my life. I had uh, applied to an engineering program at the University of Colorado and had been considered both by myself and others, i.e. my family, et cetera, as like not a great student in high school because I had really never applied myself, really kind of bored by school maybe and uh, but very passionate about building things. So I was always under a car uh, throughout high school or building houses and construction sites and all that were passions for me. And I felt like, well, I'm pretty good with my hands. I like creating things. And so maybe I'll just do it, be an engineer. And I was thinking about robotics because it was kind of a new and bur burgeoning field there in the, the late 80s, early 90s. And I was on that path. And then as only can happen to an 18, 19-year-old kid uh, that I... I had a dramatic breakup with my only girlfriend I'd ever had and was so heartbroken and dramatic at that age that I felt like, my gosh, I just need a year off to recover from this thing. Like <laughs> so dramatic and so melodramatic as it may be. And so decided in this kind of melodramatic moment that, you know, I needed to go find myself and all of this and find out if I was lovable and all the silly things you tell yourself at multiple points throughout your life. <laughs> and so within minutes of deciding I was going to take this year off and not go into the engineering program immediately, uh, an aunt of mine that I knew, you know, peripherally, but you know, wasn't a big part of my life, called up and uh, her and her family had been living in the Philippines for a dozen years uh, doing, and she was doing midwifery care there with a group of international midwives. And um, she asked if I'd be interested in coming over to kind of intern with our group. They were needing more hands on deck and just needing help uh, running their clinic and all of this. And I was like, oh, I have no medical experience whatsoever, but that sounds really fascinating. And I would love to travel. I never really got that chance when I was younger to travel internationally. So uh, I got a job at a tire company and busted tires for about six or seven months, uh, working overtime as much as I could to save up some money and get over to the Philippines. And within minutes of arrival, you know, I was thrust into this experience of watching these babies be born in the squats of the Philippines and tin shacks and, you know, dirt floors with, you know, mattresses on the ground and the miracle of life that was unfolding in front of, you know, a 19-year-old kid was so dumbfounding. You know, there's no, nothing in the Western world, you know, education or experience of a kid that prepares you for something as miraculous and as extreme as the, the combination of childbirth and poverty at that level. And so it was just a really jarring, eye-opening thing that challenged my religious, spiritual worldviews and certainly, you know, shifted my career path. By the time I'd been doing that for six months, it was just like engineering and robotics seemed like the most boring thing I could think of. And I, I had to start to go into this medical path. And so I Got back to the States and reapplied to the arts and sciences uh, uh, school at University of Colorado and not thinking I was a terribly gifted student. I was thinking maybe I could go into nursing and all of this. I wasn't thinking an MD pathway at all. So I started kind of a pre-med nursing pathway. Then the nurse practitioner field kind of came on the radar screen. And so I thought, oh, maybe I could do 
you know, extra year and do do the nurse practitioner pathway, and then you know, a year into that, this uh, physician assistants kind of program started up at the university, and I was like, oh, that sounds cool because I I'm good with my hands, and the PAs were kind of going more into the surgical fields, and so I well, I'm able to do that. So then I was kind of on the PA track for about three months, but uh, to pay my th- way through college, I was working with a landscaping company doing sprinkler maintenance and all kinds of other landscaping stuff. And so a big sprinkler main had burst on this big commercial property that we were taking care of. And so I had been digging in this literal mud pit for like eight hours to get this huge hole dug down to this sprinkler main. And me and a colleague who was a paramedic were working on this project all day literally head to toe in mud. And he looked at me, he said, Zach, you should just really be a medical doctor, you know, and so covered in mud. Like, you know, <laughs> I was like, you know, what do you, that seems like such a long path. And he's like, no, no, it's just like one more year beyond the PA thing. It's four years of med school instead of three years. And I was like, oh, okay, well, if it's only one more year, I could probably do that. That's all the more thought process that went into my next 17 <laughs> years of commitment. And it turned out he was completely wrong, had no idea how long it took to get through medical school residencies, subspecialty fellowships, everything else. But 17 years later, I, I completed a few subspecialties in medicine. And it was an interesting journey into Western medicine after coming out of this kind of beautiful experience of midwifery in the Philippines where you have no technology or you're basically, you show up and try to be really present with the process that's unfolding and I saw, you know, babies dying in the squats. You know, I saw stillborn births. I, the very first birth that I did myself catching that baby was in the back of a van at three o'clock in the morning. We were cruising across town trying to get to a hospital because this woman had been dropped off at our doorstep and somebody rang the doorbell and uh, ran. And standing at the doorstep was this highly neurologically damaged woman who had probably been born neurologically damaged, nonverbal. And she was hemorrhaging vaginally and, you know, obviously somewhat pregnant. It didn't look like a full-term pregnancy. But she was, you know, didn't have the neurologic capacity to know where she was or what was happening to her, that she was pregnant. And somebody dropped her off there. And so we just put her in the van, not knowing who or what was happening really. And partway across town, um, this baby emerges uh, and... I'm in the back of this van and I, I yelled at my aunt up front who's driving. I'm like, baby just arrived. And it was so startling because the thing was so small. You know, the, the entire baby was wouldn't even reach to my fingertips from the, the palm of my hand. You know, it was just this tiny little perfectly formed human being, blue in color, uh, without oxygen and... So I didn't even, initially when it was coming out, I thought maybe it was, you know, placenta or dead tissue or I didn't know what it was. I didn't have enough medical experience until it had fully emerged and I realized it was like this perfect baby sitting there and um, holding that thing just like mesmerized by, A, my my own panic that I know knew I shouldn't be the one in the back of this van right now. <laughs> and this woman really needed, you know, somebody who knew what they were doing. Uh, she was hemorrhaging, and I was so moved by the size of these fingernails. I mean, they were almost invisible. They're these pin pin spots of tissue on the tips of these fingers of this you know premature child that was born. And I'm holding this little thing, and within a couple of seconds, you know, it suddenly takes a breath in my hand, and feeling something that small move is just overwhelming. And that was the beginning of a journey for me of just you know, trying to cling to the miraculous nature that is 
the opportunity to be human and not be distracted by the massive amount of technology that I then spent 10 years, 17 years studying and I was developing chemotherapy by the end of my you know, academic career. And so by the end of that journey through academia, I had been trained and was kind of at the forefront of thinking about how to poison the human body. And so I went from this moment of just complete awe of the beauty of humanity and the resiliency and the drive for life. Why that kid would even bother taking the first breath was something that kind of nagged at me. And it was like the most desperate of circumstances, you know, impoverished woman, probably living on the streets, raped, pregnant, homeless. Like you can't stack more negative things on this child's, you know, potential for life. And yet that kid, you know, had an opportunity, that soul had a decision. Am I going to just, you know, let go of this little body? It's been birth. I can just let go and I can recycle. I'll go grab the next body. But for some reason, that soul decided to animate that little thing and take a breath. And that breath um, is something that, you know, I think should stick with all of us in that when we feel overwhelmed, when we feel depressed, when we question why we're here, when we feel like we've become unmoored, ungrounded, take a breath and just claim your life right now again. It's amazing because I've heard you talk about, you know, you also did a stint with hospice care and working with people at the end of their life, taking their last breath. So to see this whole, you've literally gone on this long, winding, beautiful, poetic journey that's just given you such awe for the miraculous unfolding of life and curiosity and trying to figure out, you know, what it all means and how do we continue to support life and go with the flow of nature rather than against it with things like chemotherapy and, and others that many would argue and save lives or reverse cancer or whatever. And so, well, first of all, I want to go back to the muddy <laughs> <laughs> visual of you, which I think is so ironic because you ended up back, back in, the, in mud. the mud, in the soil. <laughs> um, so I guess just finish the jump from studying, you know, chemotherapy drugs, kind of waking up to the fact like, oh, wow, this is, this is interesting what I'm doing here. You're like kind of breaking out of that research um, mindset and then getting into the microbiome. Like where was that bridge? Yeah. Nutrition was the bridge there. Um, and I was not taught anything about nutrition in medical school or any of those 17 years in, you know, Western medical mindset. But, uh, Towards the end of my tenure at, at the University of Virginia, where I did my internal medicine and then endocrinology and metabolism, which is the study of cycles of hormones and how, how your body produces energy and then how it coordinates life within the body and the symphony of organs and everything else. And so a fascinating subspecialty. I loved endocrinology. I loved you know, learning how you know, the brain talks to the kidneys and the kidneys talk back to the liver. And you get this amazing, you know, uh, symphonic tuning of the body's efforts and you have all this subspecialization working and knowing exactly who and what it's supposed to be when you're a liver cell you know why you're in the universe you're a liver cell and you do this critical job that serves the rest of the body and so there's this altruistic quality to every organ that serves the rest you know and so fascinated by endocrinology and that, of course, led me clinically into taking care of a lot of diabetes and autoimmune thyroid disease and bone conditions. And uh, But my niche was around pituitary tumors. And so the pituitary tumor journey kind of took me into chemotherapy. 
And what I got fascinated by was the way in which there was a new science kind of emerging in the 2000s of understanding cell suicide, where a cell healthy or cancerous could suddenly become aware that it was injured enough that it was not productive for it to, to continue and it would dissolve itself through this kind of cell suicide process called apoptosis. And this new science of kind of the mechanisms of turning on apoptosis, the mechanisms of recognizing damage within yourself at the cell level was a fascinating new approach to cancer because up until that time, we just thought we need to give the right dose of toxin or, or poison to the body such that the cancer cell, which is a damaged cell that doesn't do cell repair well, would die, but you would only do you know, enough damage to the rest of the body that perhaps it could pretty much repair itself as the hope with chemotherapy. But with this new area of apoptosis, there was a possibility that instead of trying to poison the body, we could turn on this self-awareness within the cancer that it would eliminate itself instead of it need to be poisoned. Um, so that was the research I was involved in, and I was studying the mechanisms of retinoids, retinoic acids, in turning on this apoptosis process in, in tumors. And it was an exciting time because in my head I was like, oh my gosh, this is, you know, it would be so cool to birth this whole new, you know, chemotherapy industry that was less toxic and but it wasn't at all, you know, without toxicity. It, you know, the retinoic acids are very difficult for the liver to damn it and you know, deal with. You can get liver injury and all this stuff. So it's not a completely benign process, less so than most chemos. But uh, it was a step perhaps in the right direction, but it was actually a patient of mine who was in my very first clinical trial. I went from kind of basic science proving out my theories around this retinoid and, and pituitary tumors and then was able to get approval for my first clinical trial. And it was the very first patient in this clinical trial. And I had, you know, this was like, you know, four years of effort to get to this moment. And for whatever reason, it was like eight or nine at night by the time, you know, the nurse was ready to bring the first dose out to the patient. And I'm sitting in the clinical research center at the hospital and she's in her hospital gown sitting on the bed. And we're talking about, you know, how, you know, my excitement around the science of what she's engaged in in this clinical trial and all this. And surprising to her and me is when the nurse comes in, she's like in hazmat suit holding these two pills in her hand. And I was just like, I, I knew the thing wasn't very toxic, but the protocol for an untested, you know, research drug kind of thing, <laughs> she's following it. And, and so it, it was very intimidating for both the patient. And I see this wo woman walking in in full garb and protective gear. And she, she and I are just sitting there on the bed with not masks on or anything. And she walks over like with her hand outstretched, like she's afraid to even like breathe the air of these pills and she the patient like uncomfortably reaches her hand out like are you going to dump those in my hand you know <laughs> the nurse dumps them in her hand and the woman sits there and looks at this and she looks me right in the eyes and says so she's afraid to touch it and I'm supposed to swallow it and so then I you know I was like I'm, I'm so sorry I wasn't expecting that like it that's just protocol for everything so I was trying to like put it into context I was still trying to actually process what was going on and as and, you know, so then I was trying to really busily explain for the next forty-five minutes how safe it is, and it's different than chemo and blah 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 mechanisms. And she asked something really profound: "Is like uh, she said partway through this forty-five minutes, a really true statement, which is how does this change the reason that the cancer showed up?" And I went into I, I couldn't answer that obviously because there is no lack of chemotherapy at the root cause of a cancer. We've never seen a single cancer caused by a lack of chemotherapy. And so she asked that and I kind of deflected and went and talked about the science of apoptosis and all kinds of scientific things. And eventually, you know, she, she said, you know, multiple times through the thing that uh, she felt in every 
fiber of her body that she probably shouldn't be swallowing, you know, chemicals to do this. And I'd continue to talk her through it. And when she finally swallowed that, there was a moment of just like exhilaration of like my clinical trial started. I'm going to change, you know, chemotherapy as we know it, blah, blah, blah. That kind of heady narcissistic, you know, ego thing kicking in. But I had this deep sinking feeling that I didn't understand at the time. But years later, I realized that that was, that was the worst moment of my physician history because I had ignored for 45 minutes the intuition of this woman and had finally broken her spirit and her connection to her intuition and made her swallow these two pills. Nothing happened. It was totally harmless. You know, there, it didn't hurt her physically, but I know that I broke her spiritually in that 45 minutes. And it's probably the worst thing I could have ever done to another human being was to inflict, you know, some scientific regime or, or philosophy on somebody's intuition and, and disconnect her from that. And I, I lost track of her. I don't know what happened to her. I hope she's, you know, well and doing well today. But it changed the course of my career for sure. A few years later, you know, as I continued to struggle with what was my role in this world of chemotherapy and everything else, I discovered that the retinoid that I had been studying was a vitamin A compound, uh, which of course the pharmaceutical companies don't really want you to look that deeply into what you're doing. And so as I started studying vitamin A as a nutrient rather than a drug, I started to get really excited about the possibility that nutrition could actually be the thing that had been missing at the core of why this woman had gotten her cancer. And so in, a, in an indirect way, I discovered that my chemotherapy was maybe actually getting at the root cause of cancer and that uh, it's the loss of these medicines within our food. And so I started studying nutrition pretty aggressively and tried to start a nutrition center at the University of Virginia for reversing chronic disease with a focus on diabetes and cancer. And ironically, this is the dietitians that shut down that effort because I wanted, I knew the science was a plant-based diet that I needed to launch. And that was contrary to the diabetes educators who really wanted the food pyramid to work. And, you know, we're trained that we needed to move people to high protein, low carb diets was the dogma back then. We, we knew, still know nothing about nutrition, but we were really pathetic back then. And so literally at the top of the list of, of the foods that my diabetics were walking out of the hospital with, if you're diabetic to lower your blood sugar, hot dogs was on the top of the list, which is one of the most processed, you know, foods more full of chemicals and carcinogens and, and sodium that screws up kidney tubule function. You couldn't pick a worse food to put at the top of a recommendation list. And yet this was kind of the dogma that took down the opportunity to start a plant-based, you know, university plant-based diet clinic. So I, I had an opportunity to stay for a bit and then 20, 2009, 2010 kept unfolding and the economic crisis in the United States defunded a lot of the NIH, uh, which led to the collapse of the funding at the General Clinical Research Center at the University of Virginia that had been funded since 1969. Just to, I think most of the public probably didn't realize how desperate academia got in those 2008 to 2010 years. And what that allowed for was not only a collapse of our department as internal medicine, my division of endocrinology was like third best in the world. We went from 75 faculty down to 23 faculty in just like 14 months during that 2009, 2010 year. And 
interestingly, the pharmaceutical industry saw the opportunity and started buying universities. So the University of Indiana, unheard of in the world of endocrinology, was bought by Eli Lilly, the, the pharmaceutical company, and they started offering funded labs to endocrinologists because at this point they had given up hope on any more drugs in the cardiovascular line and had decided that the future of profit in the pharmaceutical industry was diabetes. So they started giving funded labs, which means as an investigator that suddenly you don't have to write another grant the rest of your life. And the bane of every investigator's life is spending most of your time writing grants instead of doing science. And so it was a no-brainer for some of the best, you know, endocrinologists in the world to leap over to University of Indiana. And so a bunch of our best diabetes researchers jumped there. And so, you know, we're now 12, 13 years into this transition of, of direct ownership. It's been indirect ownership of the drug development pipeline and science and pharmacy, all that for decades. But this last decade, pharma has come to really own the educational space and the research directions of academia in really profound and direct ways. And so... Um, that was what kind of led me to rural Virginia. And so I jumped out of the university ultimately and started in the most impoverished county in, in uh, Virginia, right in the center of the state, and offering an opportunity for me to get back into my connection to poverty that I had in, in the Philippines. Uh, I grew up in Boulder, Colorado. In Boulder, there, it's you know out west, everything's so young. You don't know multi-generational poverty in the west. You see transient poverty, you see... You know, poverty events happen, but in rural Virginia, you're in African American communities, you're in you know white communities that have been in there and are still very segregated in the way in which they live in a lot of ways. But the poverty on both sides of that you know race equation was just so profound, and a food desert out there. And so it was a place, safe place for me to go teach nutrition because it was like the only they didn't have grocery stores; they were eating out of you know gas stations, and so. As, as an untrained nutritionist out there, I felt like I could probably do better than the hot dog spinning at the at the, the gas station. And uh, so that was the journey in. And uh, it was terrifying to leave the university because in, when you're a university physician, you have no responsibility for any patients. You see a lot of patients in the hospital, you have your own clinic, blah, blah, blah. But you're a consultant. You're like this kind of third-party intelligentsia that doesn't have any real responsibility for the day-to-day -day maintenance of people, uh, people's health care or whatnot. That's the primary care's duty or whatnot. So you're always kind of shuffing off or sloughing off any sense of real responsibility. To go be, you know, a, a general practitioner out in rural Virginia with my own practice responsible for my patients seven days a week, 365 days a year, no residents, no med students to do the hard work. It was terrifying. Like I was in a pretty sheer panic the night before I opened my clinic. I shouldn't have been too worried because I didn't have any patients. And so I just sat in that empty clinic for about a week before people started kind of curiously knocking on the door. But in the end, I learned more in those next five years from my patients than I had in the 17 years before. And huh. what they taught me was that humanity still wants to be well. And a codependence with the pharmaceutical industry is actually not what the consumer wants. Uh, we had been taught in medical school that patients are too lazy to try to get healthy and they just want a pill. We're told that over and over again. And that's so drilled into us that we accept that the pharmaceutical approach is the only toolbox that's going to work. They're too lazy to exercise. They're too lazy to change their diet. And the reality is they would love to exercise. They would love to, to eat. If somebody would actually tell them what to do, you go online and try to figure out yourself. There's so much conflicting data. There's no, there's paralyzing. So that's what led me back into the dirt ultimately is starting a nutrition clinic out there in Virginia. And as I was, you know, working with the food and uh, realizing that 
the medicine within the food wasn't working anymore. So the science of the 1970s and 80s that had really birthed the plant-based diet movement with Caldwell Essestine and uh, Colin Campbell and Gabe Merkin and all these amazing leaders of the 1970s, their diet wasn't working in my patients in 2010. And so 40 years later, somehow the food was failing to deliver the, the clinical outcomes that I was expecting. And so that led me into a study of uh, food sciences and the nutrients and medicine within our food, which then led me to understand soil and what had happened to the soil between 1970 and 2010 was really a revelation to me. And uh, I was astounded that medicine was not looking at the soil or the food system as the source of this massive chronic disease epidemic that had occurred. So that was the long and winding road. I apologize for the long <laughs> monologue there. No, but I think it's so important because there's just so many divided opinions out there. And to understand that medical students are now being trained under the known or unknown guise of, you know, they're being funded by pharmaceutical companies mm -hmm. there. And if you step back and look at the way our medical system operates, we teach doctors how to manage disease. We don't teach them anything about what it takes to have a thriving, vital, healthy body. So just at the, at the foundational level, our doctors are being indoctrinated in a not so life-affirming, vital way. And then we're in a system with health insurance. It just, it paralyzes doctors that get into it, you know, with the beautiful intention of wanting to save lives, but then they're kind of in this tunnel vision where they don't even know that they're being indoctrinated by pharmaceutical companies, correct? It's exactly right. And, you know, as, as I've gotten more and more into this agricultural food systems space, you find out the same thing happened to farmers at the same time. So around 1976 to 1986 was the beginning of the big shift where we were moving really rapidly away from, you know, traditional ideas of, you know, medicine and farming that were pretty holistic. You know, we need, you know, healthy lifestyles and good sleep quality and good sunshine and eat, you know, drink water. These were, you know, foundations of normal 1970s medicine. And at the same time, crop rotation, soil management, all these things were fundamental to farming. But we were at this point a couple decades into the emergence of the chemical interventions from, you know, nitrogen fertilizers and then herbicides and pesticides. And on the other side of the equation in the medical world, antibiotics in the 1940s and 50s, and then this incredible burgeoning field of, you know, drug interventions for everything from blood pressure and, and cholesterol to major depression and anxiety disorders. We, we were suddenly finding a pill for everything, you know. And so in that world, you come to find out as you back up, like, wow, we lost our autonomy somewhere in there, somewhere during the 1980s, both industries got taken over by the chemical companies. And interestingly, these chemical companies had really cut their teeth in warfare. You know, Monsanto was, was not a, a farming, you know, seed company when they, in its foundation, they, they were you know, responsible for Asian orange and a lot of other, you know, uh, toxins that we used in warfare and repurposed after the Vietnam War, you know, their their mission with the organophosphates, which is where you find the Agent Orange compounds, they needed something that was slightly less toxic than Agent Orange to 
do the work in the fields. And so they ended up with Roundup or glyphosate as a, a near cousin in the same kind of chemical family uh, to Agent Orange and started applying that to weeds, you know, to reduce the, the work of farmers, allow them to scale their farms larger, blah, blah, blah. Seemed pretty good. But, and even in Monsanto, I think honestly couldn't have imagined their own success because even in the 1980s, we couldn't imagine that we were going to develop the ability to genetically modify corn so that it could be directly sprayed by this toxin. But sure enough, by 1996, Monsanto scientists almost accidentally, the story of how that happened is pretty fascinating, but too long to tell here. But they accidentally kind of discovered how they could use viruses to start to transfect these uh, these genetic traits into plants. And so it was the beginning of the genetic engineering thing. And by 1996, suddenly they were able to apply this chemical directly to food. And the dogma was that it was water soluble and so it kind of disappears. As soon as you spray it, then as soon as it rains, it'll disappear from the soil and plants and blah, blah, blah. Unfortunately, everything on the planet is 70% water. The plants are 70% water. The animals that will eat that is 70% water. The air we breathe is water. The rain that falls. We are a water cycle as a planet, as a biology. And so by the 1990s, we were starting to get this water-soluble toxin into the food system that would become ever-present by the 2000s. And so by 2006, you know, and even earlier, 2003, 4, we were at about 85% of the entire corn crop in the United States, genetically modified and being directly sprayed with this toxin, you know, similar to Agent Orange. And soybeans went to 95, 97% domination by Monsanto seeds. But those are the ones we talk about all the time. But even before the corn, we managed to do squash and peas. And, you know, we've gone all the way into the flowers now. Roses are Roundup ready, petunias are Roundup ready. So, you know, we are surrounded by these chemically saturated, you know, pieces of nature that have, have been there. So what that chemical does is really undermine the nutritional content with the nutrient density and nutrient availability of soil. So the plant becomes deficient in its, you know, mineral content and other things. And so it starts to suffer in its immune system. And then you need more herbicides and pesticides to try to support this failing plant in the field. It looks green because you've punched a bunch of nitrogen in it, but its biology isn't working. And so you're having this failing immune system. So you become more and more chemically dependent. So all these farmers who in 1996 started planting seed by the time 2002, three hit, their yields are starting to decrease and the cost of farming just went through the roof. And the reason was because every year you needed more chemical inputs to deal with the failing health of the crops. And that's exactly what happened to humanity. So from 1996 to 2006, we went through this ridiculous logarithmic increase in expense of healthcare in the United States. Uh, By 2003, 2004, when I was a chief resident at at the University of Virginia, I was, you know, on faculty in a teaching position in And I was helping put together think tanks, the CEOs of insurance companies, because we were suddenly in the death spiral of insurance, it's called. And uh, the cost of care was going up by 7, 8% every year because the amount of chemical inputs we were needing to sustain human life as it was failing in its biology was increasing that fast. And for every 1% increase in cost, 1% of people were dropping out of healthcare because it was getting too expensive to, to justify. 
So those that would drop out with insurance, you know, 7% more expensive are obviously the ones that are healthy enough not to need the insurance. And so what was happening during the 2000s was we were consolidating, you know, or enriching the population of sick people that were insured, which of course drives up costs because those are the ones expensive. The whole concept of insurance is you need a huge pool of people, most of whom aren't sick, so that their premiums are covering the high cost of healthcare for those that are sick. So we were losing that healthy base of insured peoples which was leading to this, you know, acceleration of the cost each year and therefore more and more people dropping out. And so, you know, Obama's administration got a lot of credit for the Affordable Care Act and all of that, but it, it was didn't matter who stepped into presidency that term. We had to have a solution because we were, by 2009, going to be bankrupt as an American healthcare system if we didn't get uninsured people to get back into the system. And so what got attributed to Obama was really an inevitable necessity to, to kind of put life support on a failing healthcare system due to the cost of care. Mm. And uh, so that's what we've done now for the last, you know, 10 years. We kicked the can down the road by trying to push a lot more uninsured people back into insured premiums. And we've spent a lot of tax dollars and everything else to, to kind of buoy up this failing system. And we did the same thing with the farmers. And so with the farmers, uh, we created the USDA crop insurance program back in the 1970s and 80s. And it got more and more laden with regulatory, you know, uh, kind of carrot and stick kind of things that ensured that farmers continued to move towards chemical agriculture. And so we were giving crop insurance through the SDA that was, you know, only given to farmers that were doing conventional farming because they were, quote unquote, lower risk because we knew what the risk benefits were and the cost of their inputs and what their yields would be. And so the justification was, well, if you go organic or you go something crazy like regen or you go into biodynamic, we don't know what your risks are and you might not have the yields. And so we can't crop insurance that. And so in the same way that you convince a physician who doesn't necessarily want to give drugs saying, hey, that you're going to get malpractice insurance, you know, problems if you don't do the standard of care. I think it's so important and I've never heard it said that way, but it's this parallel to me. It seems so crucial to understand the context that we've been living in because why is half of America, you know, we're the most developed nation, uh, the richest nation, arguably, and we have the worst healthcare statistics and, you know, half of our country has one or more chronic illnesses. Um, and it it's so clear to me that it's this rise in chemical introduction into our farming, which is killing the soil and the nutrients of our food, which at the beginning of time, Hippocrates, you know, even said, the father of medicine, let thy food be thy medicine and thy medicine be thy food. In parallel to this introduction of pharmaceutical intervention uh, and drugs for everything. So we're, we're chemicalizing our interior microbiome and we're chemicalizing our soil microbiome of our planet. And, you know, both are going downhill fast. So and the, the business opportunity there became pretty obvious. By the late 1990s, with the debut of you know, Roundup Ready Crops in 1996, the chemical companies that we call pharmaceutical companies started to look at Monsanto and companies like that were, that were focused on ag and suddenly realized, wow, if we owned both sides of that equation, we would be the biggest companies in the world and we would have the most extreme job security and growth capacity as companies that you could ever imagine because every time we put, you know, sell a chemical for, to farmers that's going to sequester and, and block the ability of plants to deliver not only the medicines but to actually 
deliver the building blocks for life. So glyphosate really insidious, as well as Liberty Link, which is the new GMO from Bayer, as well as you know, 2,4-D and uh, dicamba, all these horrible chemicals that we increasingly, you know, genetically engineer our food for. We now have seeds, by the way, as of 2018 and then again in 2020, that in 2018 we were triple protected. In 2020, we began approval process for a quadruple genetically engineered seed that allows that corn to be sprayed with uh, glyphosate, dicamba, 2,4-D, and Liberty Link. So you get these four toxins that completely disrupt biology that these seeds are now engineered to survive, but then carry those toxins into the consumer. And so in the midst of this pandemic, when we're asking why is the world sick, you only have to look at the food to say, well, two years ago, we started putting triple threat, you know, chemical toxins into the human food chain, which of course then contaminates the water system and the rain and air we breathe. We, have, we are poisoning life on earth with our chemical industry. And so you have that on one side. And so Pharmacia was the first pharmaceutical company to buy Monsanto. We've got a lot of stuff in the news recently that Bayer bought them. But for 20 years now, that company has been owned by pharmaceutical companies. And so the, the marriage in, by the late 1990s of ag and medicine was really the death nail, I think, in any hope for a program in the United States for human health or planetary health. It was too late. And so as I do all of my activism, of course, I hope the U.S. changes, but I think we're a, a generation at best away from any solutions here uh, because the speed at which our bureaucracy changes is so you know, terrifyingly slow, slow and resistant to listening to the data. You know, my, my team was just at the EPA a year ago, right before the pandemic, testifying to the EPA on why we need to take glyphosate on the market. They had a mandatory public hearing on glyphosate. Uh, them, it was mandatory public hearing because they were about to approve it for another 13 years. We presented 96 you know, scientific experiments demonstrating the direct human toxicity of this chemical, including infertility and birth defects and cancer and all this stuff. And uh, it completely landed on deaf ears. You know, the woman actually stood up at the end, who was the director of the, the uh, board that we were appealing to, and said, none of the science you can have presented can be utilized uh, for uh, regulatory purposes because you haven't presented it in a regulatory paperwork fashion. You presented it as a science you know, thing. And I was like, oh, well, that's a simple solution. Where's the document we need to fill out? And she said, well, there's not really any document. You know, I was like, you just told me that we hadn't filled out the document. She's like, well, you could go back and like maybe research what other people have done to bring regulatory documents to market. And I was like, well, can you give us a buy of that? Like, no, we don't, you know, we, we don't, we can't share that or we don't, but you could probably do your own research to find that path. So that was an extraordinary thing. And of course, two months later, they approved you know, Roundup for another 13 years. And so we're at this juggernaut situation of not being able to move it. So my, ho my hope right now is that we can move the developing economies quicker and I'm really delighted by what's happening around the world. You know, Mexico, I think, is, I just need to cheer for Mexico right now. The uh, Minister of Interior there uh, came out and uh, announced that by 2024, Mexico would mandate elimination of glyphosate roundup from all Mexican farms. And there was immediate backlash from industry. And, of course, Bayer Monsanto freaks out. And they go and sue the, the Mexican government there and try to get that withdrawn. And just, I think it was two months back, uh, the appeals court uh, there in Mexico tossed the case out from Bayer. So uh, cheers twice to Mexico for holding their line. And the minister of, uh, of the interior and ag there 
came out with the statement that glyphosate is the most toxic poison that we're using on the planet right now, just blatantly, you know, put it out there. And so it wasn't like it might be a carcinogen or all this other kind of, you know, tiptoeing around it that the WHO and all this does. He just came flat out and said, here's the science, it's toxic and we're getting this out of the food chain. So I just am so excited that, you know, we now see over 32 countries in the world having, you know, in the process of banning Roundup from their things. And, you know, ironically, it looks like Russia may be the very first, you know, completely organic country in the world. Uh, wow. They're really pushing hard and helps to be, you know, an oligarchy perhaps in that situation <laughs> yeah. where if Putin decides they're going to be organic, they're going to be organic or somebody's going to go to prison or killed. But they're seeing the economic opportunity as the West kind of destroys itself through this chemical codependence. Russia and uh, Eastern Europe as well. Ukraine is, is one of the best agricultural programs in the world right now. Germany has now you know, banned the import of any grains from North America and will only buy their grains from Ukraine and Russia. And so uh, we're seeing the writing on the wall when Western countries start to realize the toxicity of the food system we're putting in play and refusing to buy our crops. And so U.S. farmers are starting to really suffer in their export potential uh, as you know this happens. Japan has long recognized that Japan is pretty famous for burning entire cargo ships of supplies in their ports, not letting them on land if they detect any you know GMO Roundup seeds in there. Wow. Um, so they've been very aggressive over the last ten years of really trying to keep keep Monsanto out of there. So these, the, I'm really hopeful that all of our science and efforts that we're doing on on this side with Farmers Footprint, our nonprofit, and all of this can really help catalyze change in these developing economies that have the option to change before their chronic disease burden becomes what ours has. And as consumers, how do you recommend just at the very, like, you know, what can we as consumers do on an individual level to try and affect change from within this yeah. <laughs> seemingly free country that we live in. Yeah. There's an, there's a really exciting reality here is that we we talk a lot about, you know, just how massive these corporations are, you know, and you talk about the juggernaut of a pharmacy, a Monsanto or Bayer Monsanto, you know, merger acquisition kind of situation. It seems too big to fail. It seems too big to attack. It seems like, you know, the Death Star sitting there, you know, and... Uh, that's that's real. Those are huge, you know, multinational corporations. Uh, you know, I've been working with Nestle recently to help them try to start pivoting their country. They're the biggest food, uh, you know, organization in the world, that's and they they're responsible for some of the most horrific, you know, humanitarian crises in the farming. Mm. You know, full out slavery basically happening in the third world under the regime of these these big multinational food systems. But they want to change. They want, you know, the, the new leadership in these companies are not the leadership that, that built these things 50 years ago, you know. And so the, the, the CEO of Nestle is a brilliant, you know, German leader and has a, a real, you know, insight that if he doesn't pivot Nestle completely to a regenerative supply chain over the next 10 years, that, that the company is going to lose its foothold as a leader uh, because the consumer is changing. And so no matter how big these companies look, Ultimately, the largest corporation that's ever been created is the, the American consumer. We consume more stuff everywhere, anytime, and we influence every single economy on the planet. And so as a consumer, if we start to demand, you know, first we should really, you know, step up our, our demands for clear labeling. You know, this whole, you know, USDA organic label is not enough. That does not tell you anything about soil management. When we do soil testing on farms, we often find that organic farms have worse soil quality than the chemical farms do mm. because of overtilling and the overuse of, you know, quote unquote, natural pesticides, all this stuff. So 
we were devastating soil on both sides of that equation because organic never put into their you know checklist the need to take care of soil. All it is is don't spray this, don't spray that, don't spray this, but it doesn't doesn't really suggest good management uh, practices. Mm-hmm. So some organic farms are wonderful and are doing really amazing stuff. But when you look across the industry, it's really not moved the needle significantly on on planetary and kind of microbiome uh, fostering, you know, nutrition and medicine within our food again, not happening. So we need to move to transparent labeling. So our nonprofit Farmers Footprint is working on rolling out a direct-to-consumer food brand that will be the first transparent label in the world, really. And so we are working on a label that will show you exactly the soil inputs that got put into the dirt that that plant was grown in. We'll show exactly the the status of nutrients within the plant and we'll prove that there's no chemical residues in that food. So the consumer will be able to see, you know, from stem to stern how they're participating in a different approach to agriculture with a transparent vertical label. And that, I think, can change the industry. And so our food brand probably stays small. It doesn't need to be big. It just needs to change the dialogue, change the narrative, show that it's not expensive. A little nonprofit can do this. And, you know, the whole argument that oh, it's too, too hard for General Mills to do, you know, transparent labeling is too expensive. They would have to print extra labels, whatever their excuse. It's not expensive. They're doing it already in Europe. Europe demands that General Mills, you know, and Kellogg's, all these cereals have to put better labeling on the on the same product that goes over to Europe. So they're already doing, they're already, already printing right. those boxes. So it's a complete farce that they can't do that for the American consumer. So we need to push hard on that. As consumers, we need to say, look, we're just simply not going to buy your brand if you can't show us yeah. how you're participating. Especially if there's an alternative. Right now there's not an alternative. So hopefully, you know, God bless. I hope your private label will be huge because we want options that are transparent. And the farmer wants the options. So amazingly, as soon as we started, you know, moving, it's been so interesting. And, you know, as a doctor set out to make this documentary about glyphosate in the Mississippi River. That was in 2017. We started that journey because I was just blown away that we hadn't told the story of the flipping of the cancer map that happened between 1996 and 2006. So in 10 years, we completely reversed the cancer map in the United States for the first time in 100 years. To change the demographics and population-based patterns of cancer is very difficult. You have to create something like Chernobyl to create a, a new epicenter of cancer. And we created that massive epicenter of cancer, far greater territory than Chernobyl did uh, with the advent of chemical farming in 1996. And so with GMO crops and us being able to now spray every acre of corn and soybean in the country with this chemical, the entire tributary system starting up in you know uh, Minnesota and Michigan, uh, over into Minnesota, Wisconsin, North Dakota, South Dakota, this huge tributary system that then collects into a single river that becomes the Mississippi, by the time it reaches Baton Rouge and New Orleans, it's picked up 80% of the glyphosate sprayed in the country. And that uh, is, creates this you know, massive you know, chemical injury to the environment and to the humans there. And so that's now Cancer Alley. The highest rates of cancer in the entire developed world are in that last 90 miles of the Mississippi River. So that was a story I desperately wanted to tell. And so I was, you know, we set out with our film crew and we were going to do this two and a half week road trip from Minnesota on down to the mouth of the Mississippi in Louisiana. And our very first farm that we landed on had a soil health academy, you know, going on. 
Alan Williams and Gabe Brown and these guys blew my mind showing me the limitations of organic farming and showing me that these soil samples from organic farms were doing worse than chemical farms and showing us a pathway to something far beyond organic, something where we stopped worrying about crop yield and green plants and we started worrying about the density of soil and starting to grow soil. And the result, of course, is vibrant, you know, highly immune, you know, plants that don't need herbicides and pesticides. They know how to do their own vitality. And so uh, it was a, just a transformative moment. But I was struck by, here I am, glyphosate guy, studying the crap out of this stuff, and I didn't know that organic wasn't the answer. And so I suddenly realized we needed a massive, you know, activation campaign, awareness campaign. So we started the nonprofit to start that educational journey. For um, farmers. For farmers and consumers, you know. And so we're really reaching both. And... I assumed we'd grab a lot of consumers' attention. I didn't know how fast farmers were going to run at us, and they came running. And so we have, you know, reams and reams of lists of, of farmers around the country that want to transition. So we're working on the big systems changes that need to support that transition for those farmers. But I was most startled by these big CPG companies and massive chemical farms coming at us. It was not surprising that the family farm that was about to go bankrupt was wanting us. But we now have, you know, the five largest, you know, California growers representing some 200,000 acres in California wanting to, to start this food brand under our nonprofit to help them start to transition their land regenerative at a low risk to them. Wow. You know, they're, they're nervous to do it on their own. They, they can't take the, the risk for their boards and public companies, blah, blah, blah. But they know they need to make the transition. So they see us as a safe harbor for experimenting with this transition of almonds, pistachios, some of the most toxic, you know, water-destroying, <laughs> you know, crops out there could can transition regenerative. And wow. so I'm very hopeful that what we're seeing right now is a groundswell, not just from consumers, but from big CPG companies, giant farms, family farms, kids who want to start farming who've never farmed, you know, this is exciting. And so as a consumer, I want you to feel empowered right now. This is not a hopeless game. We are right now pushing a snowball forward that could roll down a mountain very quickly here and start the avalanche of consumer behavior that we need. If we hit 16% of consumers buying regenerative agricultural crop products, whether that be you know a vegetable on the shelf or a granola bar that's had a full supply chain transition to regen, 16% of the industry, if we can hit that number, we will take away the profit base for the chemical industry and there's and then we will see it 100% three years later. You know, And so we only need to get to that 16% to create that massive tipping point for the industry. How do we find those products? What is the easiest way for the consumer to find regenerative farming products? Right now, you have to know your farmer because there's no labeling to allow that farmer to get that product to you. There's no, uh, you know, Patagonia and uh, Rodale Institute are working on a regen certification, uh, but all the farmers are a little bit nervous about that. There's actually 200 certifications in the pipeline now, and all of those put responsibility and cost on the farmer. And there's no mechanism for that farmer to get that new, more expensive crop to produce to market at that value-added point. So I'm launching a big impact investment fund with some incredible financial colleagues right now who have seen the opportunity now to build a very large multi-billion dollar impact investment fund over the next five years to help build the infrastructure that's necessary to, to allow farming as an entire system to transition ag. And it's complicated because you can't just change the farmer's mind, which is one of the tough you know, blockades. But once you get the mindset of the farmer changing, they can grow the crop, but now they need a place to store that regenerative grown wheat because they can't mix it in a silo with that's you know consolidating 
a regional supply of organic or you know conventionally grown crops. So you need a silo that's going to start to to store this stuff. Then you need a truck to move that to a distribution point, and then you need last mile distribution. So there's a lot of infrastructure, and there's ag tech, you know, software platforms and everything else that need to start to manage and reduce cost and you know, all these things. So our impact investment fund is you know an investment strategy, you know, for profit fund that if we could build a new system, it will be, they will come because they want to be there. No farmer in history has enjoyed getting in a hazmat suit to mix up five chemicals that are toxic to him and his family so that he can go spray that all over his land. No farmer likes doing that. No farmer wants to wake up in the morning, but that's what they've been driven to. Every morning now, if you talk to a chemical farmer, the th- first thing that crosses their mind in the morning is what, what do I need to kill today? Mm. Invasive weeds, invasive insects, what's attacking my crop? And as a resident, every morning that I was on call on these 36-hour shifts, I just got through 24 hours and I got 12 more hours. What do I need to kill now? Because in that first 24 hours of admitting a bunch of patients to the hospital, it's a race to figure out what's, what's attacking the patient. And of course, there's nothing attacking the patient. The patient's immune system is failing. And so instead of rushing in to just make their immune system better and then stop trying to kill things, I'm just in this slippery slope of kill the next thing, kill the next thing, because that failing immune system is going to have something else tomorrow. And the same thing for these crops. And the farmer doesn't enjoy that journey. The, the doctor doesn't enjoy that journey. So build the infrastructure for a new way of mindset, new way of practice, a new way of connecting back to the consumer who wants, obviously, a doctor who wants a holistic approach to improving their immune system and integrity of health. And of course, we want you know healthy food that isn't you know ridden with five or six different horrific chemicals that are going to go in and destroy our kids' guts and brains and everything else. We want that as consumers, and we need to get as close to that farmer as possible. So right now, the answer is you have to know your farmer. So get to your farmer's market, get out in the fields of your CSAs, find out how they're managing that land. You're going to find those regenerative farmers to you. The small farmers are making the transition quickly now because they see the opportunity to make that economic shift if they can find the the consumer. So be proactive. Instead of going to the grocery store, see who you can meet. Can you go to a farmer's market and start that? Instead of just buying the tomatoes at the farmer's market, use it as a networking opportunity. Start talking to the person behind the register and know that farmer. Now look at their hands. If their hands are dirty, you probably got a regen farmer. If their hands are clean, doesn't look like they've touched soil, they're probably driving around tractor spraying things. And so uh, look at, if they've got dirt under their fingernails, it's a good start. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it makes me think of this, it's just like a warfare mindset in farming and in the medical establishment. I don't know if this is controversial, but germ theory versus terrain theory, you know, literally terrain, the soil of the earth, we've bombarded with, we've killed the microbiome of the soil of the earth. We've killed the microbiome of our human organism. I just remember reading the guy who accidentally discovered penicillin at the end of his life, switched his tune. It was like it was never about the germ or the pathogen. It was always about the the terrain. Yeah, the, yeah. And, and even Luis Pastor started to come around at the end of his career with that. You know, he he birthed the idea of germ theory really in the late 1800s. He was arguing with... Bashamp, who was taking the alternative intellectual path, which was saying it, it must be the immune system. He didn't have these words at the time, but it must be you know that terrain of the body because he was doing exquisite studies in twins, showing that if you separated twins with identical genetics and put them in different environments, they would de- develop different diseases and different stages of health and all of this. And so, um, it, it fascinating observational studies uh, in, the, in the 1800s that were you know far more exquisitely done and better science than what Pasteur was doing at the time. 
But, you know, cholera and tuberculosis in the late 1800s was becoming really rampant because of the way we were living. We were starting for the first time in human history to, you know, create these massively overpopulated city centers. And so in London and India and, you know, China and all these, uh, you know, cities in North Africa and all, all over the world, we were starting to consolidate populations with unhealthy water and food systems. And we were starting to see the collapse of immune systems. So we saw the rise of cholera and tuberculosis and all this stuff. And so it's not too surprising that they saw the enemy was new and the enemy was tuberculosis because they could remember 30 years ago, tuberculosis wasn't attacking us to this degree. So it must be this new, you know, terrible pathogen. Same thing's happening right now with coronavirus. Oh my gosh, there's this new coronavirus and it must be so bad because look, at it's killing people so much more so than it did last time it was here in 2012 and so many more so than it did in 2001 with the last coronavirus before that. And the reality is, no, the train is changing. Humans' immune systems 20 years later suck, you know? Yeah. And so, of course, the same virus, you know, same family of viruses is going to have a different effect on our population. So I, I believe why the germ theory, train theory, you know, polarized thing is happening is because there's a misperception of what the two arguments are. Nobody argues that there's not bacteria that can become pathogenic and overgrow a system. There's no farmer that argues that there's not plants that can become weed-like and become invasive and take over crop space. The argument is over what's the cause. And so your germ theory people, you know, hold the position that, well, you know, a previously healthy person or farmer, a previously healthy field could suddenly be taken over by this new invasive pathogen or weed. And so that's the kind of germ theory. So now we need to go kill those two things. And if we could just eliminate that weed, then we'd be back to normal. But of course, if you take that weed out, then some other weed shows up, you know. And so, and if you do this long enough, the weeds become resistant to Roundup. And now the whole Midwest is covered with Roundup resistant weeds that are completely destroying agricultural capacity and, and production in these farms. And so uh, now that's why we now have triple and quadruple chemical seeds is because if you just spray glyphosate, you'll create it. So now we're tri triple antibioticing these these <laughs> fields to kill all, all the weeds with the slippery slope because we still think the weed is the invader. Yeah, ICUs, we're doing the exact same thing. We've got all these drug-resistant bacteria in hospitals now, MRSA, VRE, you know, C. difficile colitis, you know, mm -hmm. all these hospital-acquired, you know, horrible pathogens are multi-drug resistant because we use too much antibiotic with the idea that the pathogen was the problem or the bacteria yes. was the problem. And so in the terrain theory doesn't say these things don't exist. It just says the reason they're there is because the terrain is failing, because the immune system of the field or the immune system of the human is failing. And so if you would like to take that holistic approach to the train theory, please educate the people that are treating you like an idiot because that's what you'll see. You'll see memes about, oh, you know, there's no such thing as coronavirus or Zach doesn't believe in coronavirus or whatever it is. No, I, I believe in all of it. It's all there. That's all biology. That's all the life around us. So we need to quickly diffuse that thing of like we're idiots and we don't believe coronavirus or weeds exist. The reason the weed is a problem is, is where we differ. And so we can both acknowledge that pandemics occur every single fall, every year. It's usually flu is the worst one, but there's literally hundreds of, uh, I think we're at 12,800 pandemics since 1976, you know. Wow. And so the 12,800 viruses have gone global, measurable, having huge Im impact on respiratory death, usually starting in the third week in November in the Northern Hemisphere, because that's exactly when our train changes. In the third week of November every year, some new virus doesn't pop out of the woodwork and suddenly attack. Those viruses are here year-round, 
The difference is in the third week of November, we go into solar winter as biology. So as plants and humans, we suddenly downregulate vitamin D, downregulate our immune system for that reason of the lack of vitamin D. And we move into this, you know, vulnerability that didn't exist in the third week of October. And so flu season really always starts in the third week of November in the Northern Hemisphere and then kind of tears through till the end of April, somewhere in there, May. Uh, the further north you go, the longer flu season will last because it takes longer for us to rebuild those vitamin D stores and all that. So our train changes. And the plants losing their leaves, the, yeah. which are the, the leaves and the greenery and the foliage is the, are the lungs of the earth, the respiratory organs of the earth that is processing the carbon dioxide and all of these things out of the air. So it's this double, again, I just, I am fascinated with this parallel of human health and planetary health and the introduction of all these chemicals and also just a natural cycle. These flu season starts when our natural hormone of vitamin D drops and all the leaves go off and there's, you know, pollution in the air and our immune systems are suppressed. And oh my gosh, it just makes so much sense Such to me. Such a predictable direct, you know, confluence between air quality and respiratory failure in humans. It's it's planet and, and humanity breathing at once. It's one system. And that came home to me in an interesting way in that, you know, I had been lecturing around the country and making films and all this stuff about, you know, the the sixth extinction event that we're in. You know, we're about halfway through the sixth extinction. We've lost about 50% of life on Earth in 40 years. And, you know, so I was, you know, predicting with a lot of other people, all of us predicting that we've got about 80 years left, 100 years left at our current, you know, rate of decline. And, you know, so I'd been lecturing on that, showing the biology, and then realizing by 20, 2014, 2015, we were starting to get new data out that we had undershot by probably 20, 30 years. And it wasn't 100 years. We were looking at maybe 50 or 60 years. So all of that was terrifying. And then I'm out you know, again, giving my first talk on this farm. And it was an awesome scene. We had had a, a long extension cord from this barn uh, pulled out into this field and, and a big television screen plugged in. I was giving this PowerPoint in the middle of a cornfield in Minnesota. And I started at right around dusk. It was beautiful. It was you know, 8 o'clock at night or 7 o'clock at night or something when I start talking. Well, it gets dark eventually, and I'm still talking because nobody thinks anybody lectures for three hours, but I always <laughs> lecture for three hours. And so I'm lecturing in the dark in this field, and there's 60 farm families around me, and they're in tears off and on throughout the whole talk because they're starting to realize that the, the health crisis their own families are in are being caused by the chemicals they're spraying every day on their farms and realizing, you know, these men are realizing that you know, this, this really tragic, you know, family came up right at the end of my talk and shared this story, you know, having heard this, the dad came up in tears, both of them crying and said, you know, can we ask you a question? Is it possible that the roundup that I was spraying the week that uh, my son was conceived, I was literally walking in the house with these drenched clothes of, of roundup. Is it possible that my exposure to that led to my son's brain deformity that he was born with, that he didn't have his left and right hemispheres of his brain connected uh, with this born, you know, this birth defect? And you know, unfortunately, their science really bears out that that's a likely connection there. And so you can imagine just the horror of that dad sitting there that night in the dark in that field, realizing that you know his own actions had you know disabled his son for life, you know, uh, through this this chemical exposure. And so this this terrifying kind of thing was unfolding that night. But one of the farm educators there, Alan Williams, uh, said to me, did you know that there's only, I hadn't said anything about the extinction at that point. And he said, did you know that there's only 60 harvests left on the planet? 
And I just got goosebumps immediately. And I said, tell me more about that. And he explained the science of the decline of fertility soil and drop in carbon cycling and collapse of the microbiome and all these, you know, predictable science things. But the whole time he's talking, I'm sitting there just in amazement of what you just said, which is, it's one system. Like I, I had come to the conclusion that poisoning the soils was going to poison humanity. But when you start to talk about just, ex we are going to go extinct at the same time because we're going to stop breathing at the same time. And so, you know, the death of George Floyd for me had this overwhelming eff effect on my consciousness of like, just that simple sentence, I cannot breathe. I cannot breathe. And this man is suffocated over eight minutes where all that had to happen is that police officer just had to remove his knee from his neck. Mm. Simple, you know, if he'd moved one inch that far, that that man would have lived. Mm. And whether he was, you know, innocent or guilty, all these things are irrelevant in so many ways because it was a simple change in position could have could have changed the course of that man's life. And here we are as humanity. We can't breathe. Our children are one in six, one in eight with asthma now. Uh, one in four have anaphylactic intolerance to their food or the pollen they're breathing. Our children are failing to breathe today just as our planet is failing to breathe. The CO2 accumulation in the air is not causing global warming. The CO2 in the air is the symptom of the collapse of the lungs of the planet. We can't breathe. We need to remove the proverbial human knee from our own neck and start to breathe again. We have to do this simple thing of stop doing the damage, stop putting the weight on, you know, the, 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 the strangling weight on, on biology and let it free mm -hmm. because it will take a breath again. The planet wants to breathe. It knows how to breathe. We don't have to teach it to breathe. We don't need to reinvent the lungs of the planet. We just need to move our knee. Mm -hmm. Which is what we saw when the world shut down because of the pandemic and everybody went indoors and nobody was commuting. And that within a week, the air was crystal clear. Pollution went away. You could see the Himalayas in India from these highly air polluted cities. Even in Los Angeles, it was like stunning how blue the sky was. Oh my gosh. I was, uh, I was on stage recently with, uh, this is my concluding statement. Don't worry, you don't have to listen to me the rest of the day. But <laughs> I was on stage with an amazing woman, Dolores Huerta, who's probably the most decorated activist in, in American history. She's been to every White House since like Eisenhower getting awards for her activism. She was the right-hand woman to Cesar Chavez in the in the big Chicano movement in the 1950s, 60s. And she was speaking, she's in her late 80s and is so eloquent, so quick of mind. She's just brilliant. And so we were back and forth in this like salon, you know, round table discussion. And at the end of it, my wife and I were sitting you know, on the floor at her feet and listening to her stories. And she finally asked, you know, what are you guys doing? And so I said, well, we're doing this farmer's footprint thing. And we're trying to create awareness and activation of the importance of us to put value back on farmers and soil rather than on commodities and uh, high fructose corn syrup or whatever it is. And she listened for a few minutes and she put her hand on my shoulder. She said, well, I, I don't understand the full spectrum of what you're doing because I went into some detail with some of our programs. She said, but... What I do know is I've never seen a successful revolution that didn't start with the farmers. And that gave me goosebumps. Wow. And so the, the, the revolution that's coming is going to begin with the farmers and we're going to start in the soil and we're going to rebuild humanity from the dirt up. And uh, from there, we're, we're going to see a different future. I just, I just love everything you're doing. I encourage everybody to check out the farmer's footprint too, if they want to learn more about regenerative farming and how to support those farmers in that movement so that we can get food sources that are transparent and real nutrition that 
promotes life in our bodies and the planet. And I just, you're, the work you're doing is is extraordinary and it's so beautiful. And where can they find you? Just, you know. Sure. Um, ZachBushMD.com is my website. There's a ton of educational material that you pointed to there, the Global Health Education Summit. Uh, we've got a lot of content around general health um, over the last year, but we also focused initially on the virome and a deep three-hour dive on what viruses are and how they work and why we've misunderstood corona and everything else. Then another one pertinent to what we talked about today is uh, what happened last year, which is the public health deep dive with three hours there. And then the one I did just last month is really pertinent to uh, the understanding of this current thing that we call vaccines uh, around the coronavirus and what they actually are, genetic engineering tools. And so there's a whole three hours on genetic engineering from corn to the current vaccine movement to understand what does it mean to get an mRNA vaccine, what actually is happening in your body when you're genetically engineered with that. Awesome. So final note, the human body is resilient, intelligent, and regenerative, and so is our planet. And the more awareness and inner knowing and conversations like this, the more we raise consciousness and awareness and can make different choices that are aligned with nature and each other. Yeah. Moving forward. It's beautiful. Um, I just thank you so much for sharing all you did today. No, I'm blessed to be here with you and the audience. I'm so glad we all showed up right now. Thank you for listening to The Heal Podcast. Be sure to tune in every Thursday to hear more empowering wisdom and inspiring healing stories. Oh, and make sure you subscribe so you don't miss that one episode that holds the answer you've been searching for. Follow us on Instagram for some behind the scenes fun and more inspiration at at Heal Documentary and at Kelly Gorris. Take care and be well. truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.